Hello, everyone, and welcome to the America in Focus podcast, powered by the Center Square. America in Focus is a production of America's Talking Network. I'm Dan McCaleb, executive editor of the Center Square Newswire service. To support great podcasts like this one, please donate by clicking the link in the show description. Joining me again today is Casey Harper, the Center Square's Washington, D.C. Bureau Chief. How are you today, Casey? Doing good, Dan. How are you? Doing well, thank you. We're recording this podcast on Friday, October 28th. Casey, we are now less than two weeks away from the very important November 8th midterms. In addition to dozens of governor's races across the country, at stake is control of Congress, both the U.S. House and Senate. Uh, Democrats currently hold a slim majority in the House. The Senate is divided 50-50, with Democratic Vice President Kamala Harris holding the tie-breaking vote. Republicans seem to have a slight advantage in the House heading into the midterms, uh, but the Senate picture is a bit murkier. One of the key races in determining, determining who controls the Senate is in Pennsylvania, where Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman participate, participated in a debate this week with Dr. Mamet Oz, the famous TV doctor. Fetterman is coming off of a stroke, still recovering, and it showed uh, Tuesday night in his debate with Dr. Oz. What were your impressions, uh, Casey? Yeah, you're right. All eyes were on this debate, and, and mine were, were there as well. I think this is partially because of um, you know Dr. Oz's nationwide name recognition, partially because of all the viral clips of Fetterman kind of fumbling, and uh, it also because Pennsylvania has just become such a uh, focal state in national politics. You know, we saw with the, the contested you know, presidential election, how this all eyes were on the state and the courts there, you know, and how they were reviewing different things. And so, you know, I think in a lot of ways, Pennsylvania has become what Florida was in, in 2000. Um, you know, it's a, one of the the big states to watch. Of course, Florida is still watched closely, but Pennsylvania has really risen in that regard. And so I was watching this debate, you know, I think what stood out to me is what stood out to everyone, which is we can just start, start with the obvious, which is Fetterman um, clearly has a lot of trouble. Uh, hearing and communicating well right now. And uh, that's a very common stroke symptom. Um, it has been a while since he had a stroke and so much of the debate has revolved around his health now. And I think this is good and bad for, for both sides in a way. Of course, the, the obvious thing is to say, oh, Fetterman's done uh, because he did so poorly. Um, a lot of you know people after the debate who were who were asked they did surveys after the debate who won it was something like eighty five percent you know said Dr Oz won and so I think you know that is like the, the takeaway headline that was very viral online on Twitter and, and a lot of talking heads here in DC are talking about it I think it's a little more complicated than that because you know there's a little bit of sympathy for Fetterman and doc, I think Dr Oz has to be really careful about not coming across as a bully to someone who's struggling I think Republicans already kind of have to, uh, you know, uh, slouch off that accusation already because of Trump and just the way they're perceived. So he doesn't want to come across as a bully. And the other risk that Oz is taking here is that we're all talking about Fetterman and not Oz and not the economy. So conventional political wisdom right now is to keep your name out there as a Republican and to talk about economic issues. And uh, I think we learned from the Trump election that the danger of always criticizing one candidate is that you might just elevate them right into the seat uh, that, that you were criticizing them for. So, you know, it could be that this this debate was fatal for um, Fetterman because he did struggle so much just to articulate what he thought. There was some really painful moments where he clearly just was like belaboring just to get out some simple sentences. 
but you know, there's still some time to go before November. Um, and so I think it's still, this is not, this debate did not steal anyone's fate in my mind. I, I agree with you there. Although I, I'm not a voter in Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania, I was born and raised in Pennsylvania. I've since relocated to <clears throat> Illinois. Um, it was, it was painful to watch at some point, at some points though, John Fenneran clearly is, uh, is not a hundred percent, as you mentioned, has a hard time um, uh, uh, processing uh, the spoken word, has a hard time speaking. And the question I think Pennsylvania voters need to ask is, if they do elect him to the U.S. Senate, how is he going to be able to represent them in the U.S. Senate when there's debates on the, the Senate floor and committees? Is he going to be able to represent Pennsylvania, to represent their interests, to um, communicate what is in the best interests of Pennsylvania voters when he's there? So it, it's it's definitely a tough call. Doc, doc, you mentioned Dr. Oz and, and the quote unquote uh, bully angle. He did not mention Fetterman's uh, health during uh, the debate at all, but he did go on the attack on calling Fetterman uh, extreme in his poly policy positions on things like abortion, on things like um, energy and whatnot. So, you know, and uh, if I remember correctly, something like 600,000 Pennsylvania voters had already voted. So they'd already made up their mind prior uh, to that debate. What those millions of Pennsylvania voters who hadn't voted yet, whether that's going to affect their decisions, I don't know. Yeah, I do. I, I think there was a moment where Oz said something like, he couldn't even get the words out. Like he, he didn't quite say it quite that strongly, but there was a moment where he drew attention to, I think to Fetterman's inability just to like, to answer his question. Now that's pretty common in debate. So he's not answering the question, but there was kind of a layer of, look, you can't even talk to it. I think that's what I was referring to, but yeah, he, so far, I don't think he's crossed that line, but it'll be interesting to see like uh, how much the attack ads focus on that you know in the next few weeks i think it came from chris christie I, i've heard it of him saying it i don't know if he came up with it but he said when you're a when your political opponent is committing suicide don't commit murder <laughs> right and so there's something some truth in that here when uh there there's viral clips of your opponent um fumbling their words online to what degree do you do you pounce and to what degree do you just let this take its course thank you for your insight there casey but let's uh, let's move on um, one of the issues heading into the election that could be on some voters' minds is uh, the COVID era policies of former President Trump and current uh, President Biden, but also across the states. Um, schools were shut down uh, for months at a time, depending on what state you lived in. Um, some, some schools in some states were closed for over a year. Um, they diverted to uh, remote learning. When the, just this week, the Department of Education released. Um, it's Nat Nation's report card, and it showed the true impacts of what remote learning ha had on uh, kids. Tell us about this. Yeah, this is a really sad, um, troubling story. I think there's a lot of lessons that we can learn from it. Uh, <laughs> I guess pun intended. I don't know. School. So the, the Department of Education does this national report card where they look at math and reading scores in particular, and they've been tracking these since the early 90s. And they, they want to see how we're doing, how our state's doing individually. Um, and on, on math in particular, we have seen steady progress since the early nineties where students have gotten more and more proficient gradually, incrementally year by year, um, which is really encouraging, which is really great. You know, you build up, uh, you, you slightly increase, 
um, the you know the workload and the expectations every year. And I think anecdotally, I've, I've experienced this just with um, kids that I, I know today. I see their math homework. I don't know if you've had this experience where you see a kid's math homework and you're like, wow, I don't think I was doing this in the fifth grade. I didn't, <laughs> you know, th- there's actually some real proof, real proof to that. We've been making math harder um, for kids. And I think it's a good thing. Um, reading has has remained about, uh, hasn't seen that same increase, but it, it's remained steady, maybe increased a little bit. But uh, the COVID really toppled that tower we've been building for a couple of decades now. So, um, the, you know, this national report card found that, uh, as I said, you know, since 1990, uh, fourth grade math scores, for instance, have increased by 28 points. Um, but since 2019, they dipped down five points, which is, you know, several years taking scores back to the early 2000s levels. So in, because of COVID shutdowns, because kids were, you know, on their laptops, working remote, we all know just it doesn't take a rock scientist to know that a kid on his, la- on his laptop is going to be really distracted, uh, especially a fourth grader, and unable to really keep up in the same way as being in the same room with the teacher. Because of that, we lost, you know, basically two decades of progress um, on fourth grade math scores. And so... Um, we, you know, this is consistent across different things. Uh, eighth grade math scores decreased by even more eight points compared to 2019, which of course is before the pandemic. That's taken us back to the 2003 levels. Um, and again, uh, reading scores also also decreased. So uh, those decreased by three points. So I, I think you know we can talk about you know of course states had different uh, levels of seriousness about this, but you can't really totally one-to-one compare this state shut down therefore they should have worse policies because the demographics of states are so different you know some states have a lot more low-income kids than others and you know low-income kids are going to be more susceptible to learning loss when shutdowns because they're not going to they're less likely for example to have a parent at home to make sure that they're actually doing their work you know i think a lot of kids in the pandemic were home alone for large hours a day and just they were told to, you know, go to school on their laptop. And so unsupervised with the laptop um, didn't really yield the results. Uh, and I think it's just it, one of the big takeaways. It shows that there is a cost. There is a real cost to shutting down schools. It's not a no cost, no cost policy. Right. And, and you wrote a national story off of the, uh, the nation's report card uh, this week, Casey, but at the center we cover all 50 states and we wrote some state specific stories off of, off of this, and this is reverberating in within the state. One of the things that um, uh, the Center Squares Illinois team uh, noticed from the report card is that chronic absenteeism has skyrocketed. The thirty percent of students in Illinois, for example, were chronically absent last year. <laughs> they reverted to remote learning at the beginning of the pa- pandemic, of course, um, for months and months in Illinois. Um, Chicago schools were closed uh, at the beginning of the 2021-2022 school year, um, uh, for example, and they've lost track a lot of a lot of these kids who weren't going to school or supposed to be uh, remote uh, learning. Um, as I mentioned, more than 30% of students uh, in Illinois were chronically absent last year. Chronically absent is defined as missed 10% or more of the school year, which is a minimum of 17 days. The rates of chronic uh, absenteeism were even higher for black students at 48%, Hispanic students, 36%, low-income students, 43%. English learners, 35%. So those school shutdowns 
had a dramatic impact on students in Illinois, in Michigan this week. Uh, incumbent governor, Democratic governor Gretchen Whitmer de- debated um, a Republican challenger, Tudor Dixon. Um, Whitmer <laughs> was infamously said schools were shut down for just three months in Michigan. That was not uh, true. Uh, for the fact checkers caught that on it. Some schools, the Detroit schools, Flint schools were closed for more um, than a year. So that very well could impact mm-hmm. um, uh, the election here. So it, it's, it's going to have some wide, wide ranging effect, impacts, perhaps on the election. Yeah, it definitely has um, electoral implications. And I think that this is really a driving issue. We saw, we've seen the last two years that education has been thrust to the forefront as a top issue. And it's because of things like this. And parents were really vilified um, during the pandemic, you know, and uh, afterwards for how they behaved at school board meetings. You know, they've been really vocal, protesting, upset about, you know, um, some sexual and transgender, gender identity uh, LGBT, all that kind of curriculum and books in the in the libraries. They've been upset about vaccine mandates um, and different things. I mean, DC implemented a vaccine mandate for students. Even if you're you know 13 years old, you're going to get the vaccine. Um, there's been, of course, there were the mask requirements for students, and then the shutdowns, which are really hard. If you know, I mean, I grew up with you know uh, a single mom, and I can't you know imagine. What does a single mom do? <laughs> do you stay home with your kid or do you go to work? I mean, you're going to leave your kid home alone. So these have real world implications for um, for students and for parents. And parents really spoke up about it. And I think they were vilified in a lot of ways by the media. They were brushed aside as crazy as, you know, COVID deniers or whatever. But I think we're they've been vindicated in, in some sense by some of this data, which has showed that kids are paying a really high price. And, you know, 30% of kids, I mean, that statistic you laid out, that's crazy. I mean, is that are those kids ever going to get back? That's thousands of kids. And also we know it's going to have, of course, long-term implications for their lives, but societal implications as well. I mean, one of the best predictors of future crime rates are literacy rates, right? If you look at third grade literacy rates, please, please do this. They look at third grade literacy rates um, to help predict how big the prisons need to be <laughs> when they're building in the future. And if wow. low, literacy rates are low, then they are going to, um, you know, provide for more beds in the prison. So this is like a real issue. Um, parents are really upset about it. And I think the data is starting to support some of their concerns now. <clears throat> Scary stuff, <clears throat> Casey, but let's move on. Um, you wrote uh, uh, last week, late last week, about um, new budgetary da- data that release, that was released. Uh, U.S. government ran up a $1.4 trillion deficit in the fiscal year that just uh, ended. Federal debt has surpassed $31 trillion. Give us your thoughts here. Yeah, I got kind of fired up about this story, Dan. I think this is an example of the centersquare.com covering something in a way that the media is not and how our coverage is, is kind of unique because, you know, Biden did, you know, President Joe Biden did a big announcement, a big celebration, really spiked the football on the fact that he, you know, cut the deficit in half. And of course, you know, we have a, we care about the taxpayer angle. We don't want, you know, rampant debt. The debt is federal debt is out of control. It surpassed uh, 30 trillion earlier this year and then uh, surpassed 31 trillion later this year. So we've had it, you know, uh, surpassed 31 trillion after just hitting the 30 trillion benchmark in the same year. So the debt is out of control. Um, but I looked closer into the numbers and, and just kind of talked to some experts, saw what they're saying. And I think it was kind of misleading what was happening here. And when you look at the media coverage, the media coverage was just in lockstep with what Biden was saying is 
what a big deal it was that we cut we cut the deficit um, in half. So I just looked at looked at the numbers, and you know, it is true that the deficit was cut by one point four trillion dollars um, from last year, and it's currently a one point four trillion dollar deficit. But <laughs> the uh, the deficit that was mainly almost entirely because the Congress during COVID just passed this, you know, trillions of dollars in federal stimulus and COVID relief spending, right? So Congress uh, went out of its way to spend far more money than it normally does during COVID. And then they stopped because COVID ended. And then they take, they're taking credit for cutting the deficit by returning, you know, spending to pre-COVID levels, right? And saying that they've done this great thing just because they're kind of the spending spree is over. It'd be like if you, you know, you're, your kid took the credit card in September and went and spent, you know, $5,000 on, on shoes and stuff at the mall. And then in October, the credit card was taken away from them. They didn't spend any money. And then in November, they said, wow, look, I cut, you know, I cut my spending by a hundred percent the last month. It's like, yeah, because you went on a spending spree and now you've stopped it. So you might say, okay, well, at least we came back to pre COVID levels, but that's not, not actually true at all. Um, we are still higher than 2019. So, in 2019, before COVID started, the federal deficit was less than a trillion dollars. And now in 2022, the federal deficit is $1.4 trillion after being $2.8 trillion during COVID. So we have we haven't even um, improved to pre-COVID levels. This, you know, this big uh, you know, supposedly impressive cut to the deficit is still 50% higher than the deficit was in 2019. So another way to look at it is we're celebrating the fact that we've raised the federal deficit by 50% since 2019. Um, so let's kind of look behind the numbers. I think, you know, of course it's good that we cut it by 1.4 trillion, but I don't think it's the thing to celebrate that the the media has kind of made it out to be. And the federal deficit, well, the federal government definitely has a spending problem, has had a spending problem for decades, does not wisely spend taxpayer dollars. But this is another uh, issue that could reverberate in the states. States were the beneficiaries of some of that trillions of dollars in COVID stimulus money that the the federal Mm -hmm. government gave to them. That's coming to an end, too. Many states spent the the money poorly rather than spending it on one-time costs. Many states just added programs that are going to have recurring costs. So what's the impact going to be on these states when that federal stimulus money goes away? What are they going to do? Are they going to have to make tough decisions about either cutting spending, cutting programs, or raising taxes? And certainly taxpayers don't want to hear that. Right. I mean, the bill is coming due. It'll be interesting to see, you know, I think these states will cry out and help and say, oh, no, what's happened to us? You know, we're victims of this. Uh, and then maybe the federal government will run to their aid. I think, you know, that that really could happen. But you're right. The bill is coming due. Some of these states took this opportunity to put in place new entitlements and long-term spending programs that they absolutely cannot pay for um, in the next, you know, next few years, let alone five or 10 years. So I don't know. It's not a good situation. We'll have to keep an eye on that. After two straight uh, quarters of negative GDP, which signaled that we might be in a recession, uh, we got some news this week that in the third quarter of uh, 2022, um, there was actually a GDP growth. Tell us about this one. Yeah, this is this is interesting. The GDP, um, as you said, decreased um, the first six months of this year uh, in a pretty notable way. This wasn't just like a 0.01% you know, percent decrease. It was shrunk by 1.6% in the first quarter and then 0.6% in the second quarter. Um, 
And so this kicked off a whole debate about whether we're in a recession or what's going on. Uh, and, you know, we wrote about that a lot. And the standard definition for a recession is two consecutive quarters of GDP decline. So, you know, the Biden administration and some experts tried to say this wasn't a recession. And then the critics would say, well, it's literally the definition of a recession. So now you might say, well, two point, it, GDP increased 2.6%. Um, in the third quarter, I guess the recession is over. Maybe it wasn't a recession after all. And I think whether it's truly going to be a, a recession as we like to think about it um, remains to be seen. But of course, 2.6% growth is 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 good and much better than a decrease. But uh, a lot of the analysis that I read and people, you know, different statements that were sent out and um, just uh, experts that I've looked at have said that this is actually um, not totally what it seems. And there was a narrowing of the trade deficit, which I'm not going to get into because it's kind of complicated. And the GDP is a weird thing where it, it calculates the size of the economy. But because that's so hard to do, the number in some ways is, is kind of a guess or an analysis that uh, can be easily impacted by things that don't seem like they <laughs> have to anything to do with the size of the economy. So a significant change in the trade trade deficit gave a one-time bump to GDP, but that is a one-time thing. So if you, if you didn't have that, uh, that trade deficit bump, the GDP increase would actually be much smaller and a lot closer to zero. And so I think, uh, this is kind of an anomaly. Of course it's good. And of course, you know, it's much better than to have a decrease, but I think this fourth quarter, uh, will really be the deciding vote on whether we're in a recession or we've somehow managed to to avoid one because of this one-time trade deficit thing has kind of skewed the numbers and given a false impression. And anyone you talk to is saying that they're saying, hey, this is great, but let's not get our hopes too up because this trade deficit bump is not going to be around in the fourth quarter. So we'll be closely watching these fourth quarter numbers um, to see uh, which way is this going to fall. Is it going to fall to negative growth? Is it going to and fall to positive growth. And, and I think it's like, it's really possible that it'll be something like 0.3% growth, which is technically not a negative growth, but the GDP is supposed to grow at a, you know, two, 3%. I mean, in Trump years, it, it grew much more than that. So even just remaining around zero is really not good. The, the economy is expected to grow at a significant um, notable clip every year. So I, like I said, I think those fourth quarter numbers will really be the deciding factor, give us a lot better idea about this recession. Yeah. And if you look at what's going on across the country, it's a major um, businesses um, who are preparing for layoffs because of fears of a recession, whether it be in the, you know, whether it be now or in sometime in 2023, there are uh, major uh, business owners and economists um, who are preparing uh, themselves for a recession. So looking at those fourth quarter numbers, as you said, uh, is, is going to be interesting uh, to watch. <clears throat> Casey, uh, appreciate your insights again this week, but that's all the time we have. A reminder to our, our listeners, you can find all of the Center Squares podcasts at markamericastalking.com. Take a look. Please subscribe. There is no cost. This has been the America in Focus podcast for Casey Harper. I'm Dan McCaleb. We'll talk to you next week.